Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from John 3, 16 through 21. Hear God's word for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with all of you this morning. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And I just have to raise this up real quick because I'm too tall. And I didn't do that before. Um, so bear with me for a second. Before we begin, uh, it'd be amiss not to acknowledge what is happening on the other side of the world uh, in Ukraine. The image, images coming out of there are sobering, are heart-wrenching, and in some ways very scary, to say the least. <clears throat> I'd be lying if I said that my heart hasn't been really heavy the last few days. And in moments like these, what do we do? <laughs> All we can really do is pray. And so I'm going to lead us in a prayer right now. And then we'll move into the sermon after that. So would you just bow your heads with me one more time? God of peace and justice, we pray for the people of Ukraine. We pray for peace and the laying down of weapons. We pray for all of those who fear for what the day will bring, those who fear for their lives, who fear for the lives of family members or the lives of their countrymen. We pray for those in fear that your spirit of comfort would draw near to them. We pray for those who have power over war or peace, for wisdom, discernment, and compassion to guide their decision-making. And above all, we pray for all of your precious children, God, who live at risk and in fear. We pray that you would hold them, you alone, that you would protect them. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, who in Holy Scripture is called the Prince of Peace. We call on you, Jesus. Have mercy on Ukraine and have mercy on us, Lord. We love you. Amen. Thank you for praying with me. There really is no easy transition from that, so let's just go ahead and dive right in. <laughs> the scripture passage we have before us today, which you heard read by Carolyn, she did an excellent job, might be the most well-known Bible verse today, right? In our day and age. I mean, you've probably seen John 3.16 on billboards as you drive on the highway, or on a slide, or sorry, on a throw pillow on your grandma's couch, um, or maybe even on a certain football player's eye black. Whether or not you are familiar with the Bible, whether or not you grew up in church or you're checking out the Christian faith for the first time or you're back for the first time in a long time, John 3.16 is very likely familiar to you. 
And because of that, I'm about to say something that might be a terrible way to start out a sermon. (laughs) I'm not sure I have anything new to say to you about that verse specifically. (laughs) Don't leave yet, please. (laughs) If you have been familiarized with that verse, I'm not sure I'm going to tell you anything about John 3.16 you don't already know. If you, I don't have any like revolutionary new take on the Greek. I don't have some wild translation for you that makes it fresh. But I don't think that's a problem. Actually, the most beautiful thing about John 3.16 might be that the fact is that that verse is a well-worn path. This verse is a trail that some of us have walked thousands of times. We have become accustomed to it. We've seen the sights of it. We maybe even feel at home with it. In John 3.16, there is no trick. There is no hidden linchpin. When John the Evangelist was recording this verse and putting it into his gospel, he wasn't thinking that this was some kind of riddle. No, these verses before us are not vague. They're direct. They're not opaque. They're transparent. And the beauty of these verses... John 3.16 in particular is its simplicity. And as I was sitting with this verse, I realized that there's, there's one particular thing this passage does for us. And this is regardless of whether or not you're like new to the Christian faith or if you've been a Christian for 30 years. It does the same thing. Here's what it does. And this is going to sound intense. This is the name that I've given for it. John 3.16 is the God illusion destroyer. That sounds intense. But what do I mean by that? John 3.16, it eliminates any illusions. And basically what I mean by that is misunderstandings or wrong images. It eliminates any wrong ideas we have about God. If this passage does anything, it tears down our ideas of God when we try to make him into our own image or define him in human terms. You see, within our human nature, we have this chronic illness where we try to express God with manageable ideas. We try to reduce God to human dimensions. Ultimately, when we do that, we find a God who is made in our image with our own human understanding. And we don't realize that we've created a different God in our minds, one who is limited by our own human desires and our own terms. Here's an example. Maybe you think that God wants you to just do the right thing. God is the big man in the sky who's happy with you when you're a good person. And he's mad at you when you're a bad person. That's an illusion. Here's another. Maybe you're in the place where you've figured out or figured you've seen everything the Christian God has to offer. You've seen it all. And actually, there's a subtle discontent that comes with that. You have this question that arises within you every once in a while. This question is, is this enough? Should this be enough? Is this what this God really offers me? These are just two examples of God illusions. And this verse invites us to drop those and to see God for who he actually is. This passage is core when it comes to healing our image of God. And it does that in three movements. First, it helps us see God for who he actually is. In this passage, John tells us who God is and what he loves. Second, because we then see him for who he is, it helps us to see ourselves for who we are. And third, it leaves us with this simple invitation from God. 
So it helps us see God for who he is, and in light of that, we can see ourselves for who we are, and then last, it leaves us with an invitation. So let's start by seeing God for who he is. Look with me at the first two verses again of our passage, John 3, 16 and 17. They should be up on the screen behind me here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So what does God love? Well, it's clear. He loves the world. In the original language, this part can literally be translated, this is how God loved the world. John is reminding us of what he just talked about in the verses before. He's referencing the idea that the Son of God must be lifted up. And when John says that phrase, lifted up, he's referring to the crucifixion of Jesus. He's saying, this is how God loved the world, that the Son was lifted up on the cross and died for our sins and suffering. Here's the first half of John's point. This cross, which is the ultimate goal of Jesus' mission, it finds its grounds, its purpose, its motivation, fully and completely centered on God's love. It's 100% grounded in God's love. He doesn't leave it at that. Who is God's love for? It's for you and for me, for the world. If you glance forward to verse 19, you'll see that John has some pretty intense words for the world and the predicament that people find themselves in. He describes people as lovers of darkness. (laughs) But this is the second half of John's point. God's love that he has shown the world through Jesus, this love has nothing to do with our inherent goodness or loveliness. Let me say that in a different way. Jesus going to the cross has nothing to do with us being deserving of that action. And this is where we sometimes get tripped up. It's where we can have a misunderstanding about God. Why? Because the love of God is so radically different than our natural human way of loving. Take me for example. As a human being, as a human man, I am drawn to love things that I find appealing to me. For whatever reason, I love rock music, I love reading, I love the ocean, I could go on, but essentially it's simple. I am most attracted to the particular things that I feel like have inherent loveliness in them. I'm drawn to those things. And this is the same thing when I love people. Take my family or my best friends. I love them because of what I find really lovely about them. I see all of that beauty and who they are as a person and I'm drawn into that. That's the nature of loving. It's the nature of how humans love. We typically love things and people that are most lovely to us. Here's the rub. God is not like that. God's love is very, very different. Here's a quote from The Relentless Tenderness of Jesus, a book by Brennan Manning. Now, unlike ourselves, the Father of Jesus loves men and women not for what he finds in them, but for what lies within himself. It's not because men and women are good that he loves them, nor only good men and women that he loves. It is because he is so unutterably good that he loves all persons, good and evil. He loves the loveless, the unloving, the unlovable. He does not detect what is congenial, appealing, attractive, and respond to it with his favor. In fact, he does not respond at all. The father of Jesus is a source. He acts. He does not react. He initiates love. His love 
He is love without motive. It is God's very nature to love. That's who he is. Later in one of the epistles, John says it this way. So we have come to know and to believe the love God has for us. God is love. So when John says in John 3.16 that God so loved the world, it has nothing, it has nothing to do with us and our being deserving of that love, but it has everything to do with the God who is love. And that's so important for us to wrap our minds and our heads around. If we don't, we'll be left with an image of God that doesn't correspond to who he actually says he is. Do you think God will love you better when you become better? Are you pretty convinced that deep down God is disappointed in you? And it's only when you make yourself better and more lovable that he will love you more. If you believe that, then you don't understand God and his love. God will not love you any better when you become better. He loves you just as you are right now. If you don't care that God loves you, he still loves you. If you don't feel like God loves you, he loves you. If you don't feel like you're worthy of God's love, he loves you. I'm going to make this awkward for a second, but bear with me. God loves you because he loves you, 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 because that is what he is like. It is his very nature to love, and his love is unchanging. God's love is based on who he is. It's based on his very nature, and that is all that is the final word. And because his love is based on his nature and not ours, that's actually what makes us secure. There are so many people, either Christians or people who are trying to understand the Christian God, who carry with them this heavy burden of trying to deserve God's love. Is that you? God's love is a free gift, and it stems directly from who he is. And it's precisely why. John continues in verse 17 by saying, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God didn't demonstrate his love through Jesus in order to lay on us a heavy burden. God came to take the burden away. And truly, he means what he is doing is saving. He's saying, you can't save yourselves, don't try. I'm going to save you. If you believe that God's love is contingent upon your performance, that's a heavy burden. If you feel like you're just performing and you're exhausted, if you feel like you're trying to do good enough, that your conscience is finally able to rest, but then you're constantly failing yourself, then let me remind you that when God looks at you, he sees someone that he loves. God says through his son Jesus, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, for I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's Jesus' invitation to follow him and to tell him that you're coming to him and to experience God's everlasting love and his everlasting life. Let me share with you one more quote. Brendan Manning goes on in The Relentless Tenderness of Jesus. He says this, God does not condemn, but forgives. The sinner is accepted even before he repents. 
Forgiveness is granted to him. He need only accept the gift. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the love story of God with us. It begins with unconditional forgiveness. The sole condition is trusting faith. Christianity happens when men and women experience the unwavering trust and reckless confidence that comes from knowing the God of Jesus. There is no reason for being wary, scrupulous, cautious, or afraid with this God. As John writes in his first letter, in love there can be no fear. But fear is driven out by perfect love because fear is to expect punishment. And anyone who is afraid is still imperfect in love. What is John saying in 16 and 17, these verses? He's saying God loves you. And why does he love you? Because of who he is. He expressed his love through Jesus on the cross. And the whole point of that is to free you, to join him in everlasting love that he already has. And he invites you into that everlasting life. Will you do that? Will you join him? That feels like a sermon in itself. (laughs) But John doesn't stop there. He keeps going. Look with me at verses 18 and 19. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. That light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. The verse keeps going on, but I cut it off so I could fit it all on one slide. (laughs) Um, What does John mean when he says that people love the darkness? What does he mean? I'll be honest. I don't think he means that everyone is just obsessed with doing evil. I don't think he means that. What John is doing and what he has been doing since the beginning of his gospel is that he's playing upon our physical experience of light and darkness. And he's doing that actually as a metaphor. So what I mean is that he's using light and darkness as a metaphor to refer to other very real concrete spiritual realities that we experience. So when he says there's this spiritual reality of darkness that we experience, what he is saying is that our sin, it is our experience of spiritual darkness. John is not necessarily saying that we are completely obsessed with evil things. No, he is saying it's our natural propensity to stay in our sin. In other words, it's to love the darkness. It is in our nature to stay in darkness, to stay in our sin, and not move into the light. John said it this way, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. He's answering the question of, what do we really love? And he's saying we actually really love darkness. So I've been a pastor, I always say this, I've been a pastor for a good 10 minutes now. Um, I've been here for a little over three years. And one of the things that's been a great joy is to have spiritual conversations with people, particularly non-Christians. In my short time as a pastor, the greatest challenge I have seen to the Christian faith is not an intellectual challenge. Often people intellectually assent to a belief in God. They can get there. That's not a big leap for a lot of people. The greatest challenge to faith that I have seen most broadly, it's a moral one. That leap can feel big. That there is this moral nature to following Jesus. 
There is moral accountability to following Jesus. That can feel big. G.K. Chesterton once said it like this, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found hard and left untried. We love to stay in our sin. We love to stay in the darkness. Maybe you're wondering why. why. Why do we love the darkness? Why would we stay there? What is it within us that makes us stay there? And here's what I came up with. <laughs> and I think it's biblical, so it's not just, my, it's not just me thinking this up. I think it's, it's really biblical, and I'm going to get there and show you. Here's what I came up with. This is what I think the darkness provides us. The darkness provides us a space to hide. Go with me here. There's a core belief we have as people who are born into darkness, who love the darkness. And that core belief that each of us really have is that no one's going to love me in my bad. This is our, that's a, a deep belief in fear. No one's really going to love me in my unloveliness. No one's really going to walk me, with me into that place, that part of who I am, and see it and choose to love me in it. And because we don't believe that, do you know what we do? We hide. We hide in darkness. Darkness offers us a sense of safety and control. In darkness, we hide from God, we hide from others, and even ourselves. Ultimately, what keeps us staying there is shame. This whole thing about hiding that I've just described, this is the picture that Scripture gives us. Let me take you back to the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis, the first book, what was the last thing that was perfect in Eden? That was the first thing that was undone in the fall. The last thing that was perfect in Eden was that they were naked and they, what? Felt no shame. Then Adam and Eve, they sinned, they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and what did they do? They realized they were naked. They covered themselves and they were ashamed and they hid from God. Shame keeps us in hiding. You see, there are things in our hearts and in our lives that we want to keep in darkness. We would rather hide them away. These are the hidden parts of our heart. These shadowy places of our hearts are where we store things we don't want others to know about. We don't want to bring them to God. We want to ignore them even for ourselves. They bring us shame and we store them in darkness. To move into the light means exposure. <laughs> Moving to the light means potential for rejection because we don't believe someone would choose to love those parts of me. I think there have been many who have ultimately rejected Jesus out of fear of exposure. Out of fear that Jesus might ask them to give up something that they're holding really dear. When John is talking about loving the darkness, this is ultimately what he's talking about. We're loving something more than we love God. There's something that grips our heart in the darkness that we love more than God and his love. We love our sin. We love to stay hidden. It's our nature to refuse to bring our full selves to God and then move into the light. And so if you ever find yourself in a place where you're like, man, I, I'm loving darkness, or maybe you're feeling that now or whatever, you find yourself hiding is my point. There's something you need to remind yourself of. And that something is how John begins the passage. God is love. And he sent his son to be lifted up. Why? Not to condemn you. 
We are already condemned. We condemn ourselves because of our love of darkness. God sent his son to the cross that we might be saved into experiencing God's everlasting love and light and life. So the light shouldn't be threatening. The light is God's love for you. The light is God's mercy for you. You can walk into it, move into it, step into it. It's better than the darkness. So John started out by telling us about God's love. He moved on into telling us about what we love. And now John makes one final move. And it's an invitation. It's the invitation to come into the light. That's the invitation. Look with me at verses 20 through 21. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come, into, come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John's invitation here is clear. Come into the light. Come into the light. The light is where things are true and good and lovely. So as we finish our time together, I think what the most helpful thing I could do is to, just to help us make sense of this invitation. It's just to walk us through three kinds of diagnostic questions to help us respond to this invitation in a very practical way. Here's the first question. And it starts off with a statement. I'm just going to reiterate this. There is a God who loves you. Have you embraced him with a saving faith? Have you gone there? Saving faith in Jesus is essential to experiencing God's everlasting love. It's essential to experiencing everlasting life. And I know this saving faith idea, uh, it's, we, we make it about a particular singular moment in our lives. And I don't mean to diminish that. I think that's important. But I wonder if a better way of understanding it so that we continue to live into that everlasting life is if we just ask simple questions like, what does my heart love most? Where does my ultimate trust lie? Obviously, we know the right answer to those questions, but those questions invite us to just take a look at what we truly, deeply desire. Is our deepest desire for Jesus? Do we, can we reckon with that? I'll mention this too. A saving faith never stays hidden. It, it never just lives in here. It bleeds out of us. It can't help it. God's love is always other-focused, right? It's always other-focused. And so a heart that is being regenerated by his spirit always shows itself. It always does. It becomes evident in our transformed hearts, in our desires, and in our loves. I also believe that saving faith, it points us to a spiritual community. We need each other. Faith in Jesus is inherently communal. We cannot do it alone. There's no like lone wolfing the Christian faith. We need our spiritual family with us. We need them alongside of us. That's how God shows his love to us. Others speaking truth and love and grace into our lives. If you have more questions about what a saving faith looks like, feel free to talk to one of us on the pastor team. Like we would just love, we would love to talk with you about that. The second question is this. Where are you loving darkness? 
Sometimes we just need to take a good look and ask where we're hiding. Another way of asking this is, is, it, is what are we keeping from God? What are we keeping from him? What are we holding on to that we don't want him to touch? Does it mean confession? Does it mean changing patterns of behaviors? Does it mean forgiving someone? Does it mean no longer ignoring injustice and to begin caring for the poor and the vulnerable? What in our lives are we keeping from God? And the last and third question is this, and it might seem strange at the outset, but I'll explain. Uh, How are you medicating your life? We, we live in a very stressful time. <laughs> if you're alive and breathing, you know that. <laughs> if you have a pulse this morning, you know that. Many of us have stressful jobs, stressful situations outside of our jobs. So my point with this question is this. We, we might not have any large areas of hiddenness. I was asking those questions. You might be like, well, I'm saved. I'm confident in that. I don't have any these large areas of hiddenness. But instead, we might just be simply medicating ourselves with different things to dull our heartache, to push aside griefs, to cope with our losses and the pains of life. How do we medicate ourselves when we encounter these things? Is it with pleasures? Is it with just more things? Is it just with constant distraction? Or is it with relationships that won't ultimately bring wholeness into our lives? Jesus does not promise to spare us from suffering and difficulties, but what he does do is offer us his spirit to give us hope and strength. So we can lean into him and receive everlasting resources instead of medicating and going our own way. Hopefully those diagnostic questions just help guide you into fully embracing God's invitation to come into the light. The light is his love. It is his mercy for you. There's no reason to fear it. So as we close, let me remind you just where we've been. John says in our passage that God loves you. It's the final word. He will not love you any better when you become better. He came to save you from the darkness that you love and instead of that darkness, offer you everlasting life that begins now by embracing his everlasting love and moving into the light. Will you respond to him? Will you go there with him? Will you walk into the light? Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you that your word is not just black words on white pages. (laughs) It's the words of life. It's words of love. God, we thank you that it is in your very nature to love, to love the unlovely, to love us. So I ask you now, Jesus, through your Holy Spirit, that you would pour out yourself in an abundance in this place, in the lives of your people here, that they would sense your love, they would feel your love, they would experience the greatness of your love. Lord, we ask that you would give us courage to walk into the light, to live in the way that you have called us to live, which is the way of love and the way of everlasting life. We love you, Jesus. It's in the name of your Son, Father, Jesus Christ, and through the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray these things. Amen.
So now as, as we move into our time of communion, I'm reminded that every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, God is reminding us of how he showed us love, right? At the beginning of what John was talking about. Through his son's death on the cross, the son being lifted up, he showed his great love for the world. And this meal, his supper, it's a sacred act, a time set apart that we might partake of his love and be spiritually nourished and encouraged and find renewed hope. If you're new with us this morning, let me encourage you that this is an open table. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, you are welcome to come to the table. Just some quick instructions for the time. There are two communion stations on either side. There will be servers at each station. We'll have masks on and gloves on, and we'll dip the bread into the juice, and we'll hand it to you. I'd encourage us to to go out of our seats towards the center, the aisles here, and then line up on the outer walls. And then you can head back to your seats through these these kind of front aisles here. Hopefully that makes sense. If it doesn't, there's other people who do this every week. So just wait a second and watch what they do. Let me read into your hearing the words of institution from Paul in 1 Corinthians. Paul says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. You can take them in remembrance that Christ died for you. Feed on him.